Hey, what's going on? This is Jeremy Thome, Director of Marketing for 3PL Systems and host of 3PL Live. I'm excited to share an interview with Glenn Stebbings. Glenn is the president and CEO of Logistic Insurance. They're actually an app you could use in our software, 3PL Systems. You could pull in a certificate of insurance directly in our software, which is pretty cool. So we get into how he made that product and his journey of being a serial entrepreneur, and also a little bit of his, about his background, about how his parents immigrated from the UK and kind of where he comes from. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Glenn. Hey Glenn, thanks for coming on to 3PL Live. I'm excited to talk to you about your entrepreneurial journey. It's not often that I talk to get to talk to someone that's created so many different companies. For those out there that don't know you, would you just mind introducing yourself, what you're up to, and how you got into the supply chain? Yeah, my name's Glenn Stebbings. I'm president and CEO of Logistic Insurance Solutions. We have a consulting company as all. Transportation Innovation Management focuses on um, consulting services geared for the logistics industry. Logistic Insurance Solutions is a, I would call a program manager, and we've developed insurance programs for companies in the logistics space, the big focus on domestic freight brokers. We work with a network of about 180 retail insurance agents across America that focus on the trucking industry and with that, the logistics industry. It's really cool. I know that we have a lot of customers that use your insurance directly. They get their certificate of insurance directly through the app and brokerware. People love it, that convenience of it. How long ago did you guys develop that software? Because it seems like really convenient the way you guys made it. What it is, is uh, the name of that product is Freight Insurance Fast, and that's designed to domestic market and, and transportation, specifically with trucks. It's been designed from an ease of use standpoint. That's always critical with technology, but how it's used by many, and it benefits freight brokers who are organizing transit for shippers with motor carriers also is used by by truckers themselves and the view of it being as as user-friendly as possible is critical its importance in the marketplace is identify two modes of transport for truckers in the u.s and that is full truckload shipments commonly called fdl shipments mm -hmm. and less than full truckload commonly called ltl shipments the need on fdl shipments typically is to provide excess cargo coverage above the motor carrier's own cargo policy limit. On a full truckload shipment, the trucker's gonna be responsible for the value of their load, but typically that is just up to their cargo limit. Many motor carriers just have a 100,000 limit. What do you do if the shipment's worth 250,000? Well, through our platform, user-friendly platform, Freight Insurance Fast, they can instantly obtain the additional coverage above the trucker's own cargo policy. So mm -hmm. how that benefits freight brokers is now they have a wider selection of motor carriers uh, that they can use to move a shipment. They're not restricted by the trucker's cargo limit. And that's important because we know there's at times shortages of motor carrier availability, particularly in certain lanes. So it's very user-friendly from that perspective. And truckers who can't really go to their annual cargo market and get an instant increase for a shipment, use our platform as well. So that helps them avoid losing shipments. Uh, both segments of logistics benefit from that platform being available. On LTL shipments, motor carriers often limit their liability to as little as 50 cents a pound. And as a result, you're not going to have the trucker being liable for cargo damage above and beyond that, that limited tariff that they 
have filed. You could have a thousand pound shipment, but it's worth $50,000. Obviously, there's not enough coverage at 50 cents a pound. So it's it's using that in that segment of logistics as well. And then the ease is also, we've built it with API capabilities so it can be housed in TMS platforms uh, like we enjoy with 3PL. Now, from a, an ease standpoint, you're in a TMS platform, you're organizing the shipment. You don't have to leave the platform. It's it's housed right within that platform. And, and that's then a, another value add for both the TMS platform and what we're delivering. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your, your father too. So your dad was from the UK and then at some point came to the US, I believe to like New York was yeah. in logistics industry as well. Could you give a little bit of that story and then? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, if I'm an entrepreneur, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. I mean, my father was pretty industrious from an early age. I mean, a, a quick story. He is a veteran of World War II, and literally at 15 years old, this is during the Blitz, uh, he was in what's called the fire brigade, which is trying to put out fires as a result of the bombs. And mm. he was running around from one location to another and advising the people in charge where various fires were located. Uh, at 17, he then went to what's called the Home Guard, and the Home Guard was any aircraft, guns, and rockets that were operating in the parks in London, like High Park, and, you know, trying to prevent German bombers from dropping their bombs. And then at 18, he was in the Royal Navy, a minesweeper, uh, guarding the Straits of Gibraltar, trying to prevent German subs coming in and out of the Mediterranean. Very early age, he put him right out, himself right out there, but he emigrated to um, New York after World War II. He was basically sponsored by an aunt that allowed him to get paperwork to get over there. And the very first interview he had was with a company called Royal Globe Insurance Company in their marine cargo department. And he was fortunate because he had a little background in logistics. Hmm. He was, after the war, working for a freight forwarding company. He had that background. Uh, He had several jobs, but that was one that helped him get his first job at Royal Globe. Obviously, logistics associated with cargo and and ocean cargo, and the person interviewing him was English. So from the very first day, he he had a job, basically. Being very industrious, for the uh, next eight years, he essentially worked seven days a week, five days a week in Royal Globe's cargo department as a clerk. At night, he was getting his uh, CPCU designation. It's a chartered a public casualty underwriter. It's like the highest designation you can get, but that that took uh, five five years for him to get uh, at night school. And then he on the weekends he worked at um, Jones Beach as a as a uh, hmm. in the as a restaurant in that restaurant as a waiter. Extremely hardworking individual. And whenever I thought I was working maybe a little too hard, I always had that perspective of what my father went through to establish himself. And then he helped me get into the uh, the insurance industry uh, as a direct result. It's really served me throughout the years. I'm a graduate of the College of Insurance, which he introduced me to. This is now part of St. John's University, but it was a unique opportunity to get into the industry, get your college education, get a BBA specialization in insurance program worked as you would go to school for a semester, and then for a semester, you'd be working in an, an insurance company uh, that sponsored you. He actually helped me get sponsored by a, a company called Bleishorter Bing in 1974. 
and he had a good friend there, Hans Oppenheimer. <laughs> Essentially, he got me a job, and Hans and my father were good friends, but uh, it was very clear from the beginning I was not going to have an easy ride at, at Bleichwerder Bing. I would have to work <laughs> for everything that I achieved, and Hans made that very clear. Curious, how was your training with uh, Hans? What did he teach you? From the very get-go, when I first got the job, he sat me down and he, <laughs> he essentially said to me, I mean, I'll be very graphic. He was like, you're in this company because your father's a good friend of mine. You'll <laughs> stay in this company because of your own efforts now. You are shit. You're the bottom of the toilet bowl. You'll have to work your way up. And so it was very clear. going to have a free ride because of my father. No but Hans would love to. We had a bullpen where you'd have almost eight different cargo brokers. And our job was to represent companies that needed cargo insurance. That could be a shipping company that owns goods, or that could be an international freight forwarder. We were to be skilled and crafted in the real knowledge of coverages that were applicable and, and just all the issues that are involved with international trade. How Hans would often test us would be, he would just come into the bullpen, he would just shout out questions and direct them at different individuals. And there was one occasion I remember him coming up to my desk and Snippings, three clauses in cargo policy referring to time frames, damn them. You know, so I had to think about those clauses that are in the cargo policy. And I'm like, well, there is the, you know, warehouse to warehouse clause that says coverage stays in effect 30 days after uh, the vessel discharges its cargo. There is a marine extension clause that extends the warehouse to warehouse clause if the vessel is has to pull at a port of uh, distress because of damages. And then there's a clause that pertains to shipments down in South America called the South American clause that extends the warehouse clause from 30 to 60 days, except 90 days for shipments on the Magnolese River. I mentioned all three of those. He just grunted. He goes, hmm, correct. So he goes, all right, uh, South American Clause, restriction or extension of coverage. <laughs> and he made the mistake of saying, well, it's an extension because it takes the Marine Extension Clause from 30 days to 60 or 90. And he screams back, no, idiot, it's both. <laughs> it restricted the Marine Extension Clause, which had unlimited extent of coverage. But getting in the weeds here, but that's an example. I, I went through that constantly with Hans. My father was um, well-published in the marine cargo industry. He would, again, another one of his sessions, he would come in, he would talk about an article my father had wrote and ask for the opinion of various people. And I remember one of my associates in there, Doug Schimmel, said, well, you know, I, he's got some points, but I disagree with him about these particular areas. And Hans's response to Doug was, well, we know... <laughs> His offspring's an idiot, but the senior <laughs> stabbings is pretty bright. So they're all laughing at my expense. This was happening pretty constantly. And at that juncture, I was a little frustrated with Hans. And I just looked at him and I just said, Hans, go fuck yourself. <laughs> and just nodded and went back into his office. But uh, so funny. that was the experience of training with Hans. But he was, he was a brilliant guy. He liked to have fun with me, but I learned a hell of a lot. Did you think that you were going to stay with Hans for forever or for as long as you could? Or What happened was Bleichwerder Bing, an interesting history there. There were actually 
originally started in Germany, and there were German Jewish uh, insurance agencies specializing in transportation coverages. Mm-hmm. Um, the Nazis were coming into power. They got out of Germany, were set up an office in London, and then ultimately set up an office in New York. And it was a great company to work for, no doubt about it. Leaders in the industry, both in, in representing logistics companies and, and all sorts of companies associated with the import and export cargo and transit insurance. The owners, I guess, as they were getting close to retirement, ended up selling the agency to a company called Alexander and Alexander. Mm-hmm. And we were all moved into this much larger organization. Ultimately, Alex and Alexander were purchased by Aon. Um, but, you know, so we went from eight brokers in the cargo department to we had 35. So I was a fish in a very big pool. Ultimately, um, Hans was retiring anyway. I made a decision to, to move on to another company because at that time, you were not going to get a hell of a lot in salary increases and in how you really moved up is, is moving from one company to another. So that's mm. the background of how I moved there. And I moved to another company that was very focused also in logistics. It was a strength of mine because of my background with Bleichroder Bank. So you ended up getting some sort of payback from a college from your work? Well, yeah, that that's true. The, the way the work-study program worked at the College of Insurance is you had to stay with the, the company that sponsored you as you went through your undergraduate degree. So they paid two-thirds of your tuition, and the, then the one-third that was paid, well, in that case, it was paid by my father, would be returned to you after um, you stayed with the company after graduation for two years. I had to stay with at that juncture in a, at least for two years, and I did. And then the one-third uh, of the tuition uh, was returned. And it was funny. It was returned to me in a check, maybe $14,000, not a huge sum. My other brother had gotten his whole college education paid for by my father, but my father knew a check was returned to me, <laughs> asked for the money, and I'm like, no way. <laughs> you pay for Gary's. This is, you know, me getting started. You need to get an apartment. You want me living at your house for the rest of my life? And he goes, oh, perhaps that was a good decision, yes. So <laughs> a little financial gain that helped me get uh, my own place and get started on my own as an adult. Yeah. So what happened at that point, I guess, like where, what was like the first um, go at a business that you were excited about, I guess? Well, the first point move after... I made after Bleichroder, I mean, Bleichroder being merged with A&A, I sought out a company that was strong in logistics and innovative. I basically, I sought them out and, and applied for a job because I had a skill set I thought they uh, they could use, and mm-hmm. I got hired, and it was a company called Nausch, Hogan & Murray, very creative broker, and, and did a lot of very interesting things, were very involved in international freight forwarding, but also heavily involved in the oil and gas industry, builders risk programs. There's, at the time, the North Sea, many uh, platforms being constructed, so I got exposed to um, exposures, builders' risk exposures offshore, and even got involved in uh, underwater technology, ROVs, and things of this Mm. nature, Um, but always had a hand in the logistics space. Hey, Glenn, so what happened after now Hogan and Murray? I worked there for eight years, uh, learned a great deal. Beyond being a, a broker, I had actually was producing business for them. I was beginning to able to bring new business into the organization. And I was looking, which is common, you're a producer, 
to get a commission arrangement. Uh, the owners were just receptive to it. I was not paid that well for, you know, I, I did an analysis of the income associated with the accounts I managed and the new business I brought in, and it was <laughs> literally millions. And they were paying me, you know, and I guess at the time I was maybe about 27 in the mid 30s, both at the time an okay income, but I had brought in almost a half a million dollars of additional income and they <clears throat> wouldn't give me a commission arrangement. So mm. I just made a decision that I needed to find an entity that valued what I could do from the perspective of bringing in business. And sure. so I found that with another company who I was with called Cook and Miller at the time. With them for a short period of time, I went out to the uh, West Coast. Ultimately, when I was out there, the opportunity just to, to start my own operation was present, and, and that's what I did. That was really in the oh, 1990-ish. I had a company that was operating, and I, I saw the opportunity for technology to be developed back then because big product that we saw was shippers' interest cargo insurance, and essentially freight forwarders. We had an account, I helped lend an account called Shanker International, was involved in other large ones in the international Donzas, AEI, a number of large international freight forwarders. And a big product that they would sell is cargo insurance to their customer base. It protected their customers, but it was also a source of revenue because they would charge fees of processing. But one of the problems with cargo insurance at the time prior to technology is for each shipment in, in shippers' interest cargo insurance, you would have what would be known as a certificate of insurance issue. It's a negotiable document, and it's required under letters of credit. As, it's like you original bill of lading, you need an original insurance certificate. Problem with it is it was in a manual environment. It was just being typed up. Problem with that was it was open to some freight forwarders, quite frankly, you know, not being honest about turning in all the certificates at the end of the month in a manual environment. If a shipment started on the first of the month and was there by the 10th, you'd have certain individuals that just wouldn't turn in the certificate because there was no claim. So it was problematic, problematic on many, on many fronts. There was, there's a lot of data that could be obtained through technology program where you were issuing cargo insurance. So you could see all the parameters and data there. And then on the claim side, you could see where the claims were and the source of all that. So there was inherently an opportunity to take a manual environment and take advantage of technology. I had a vision of, of developing that, launched our first program in 1998. Now, it was prior really to the Internet being established. And what initially was developed in terms of technology was a desktop application. problem with that is it had to be installed and housed at International Freight Forwarders own system. So there's a whole series of maintenance and, and issues associated with that. So it wasn't ideal, but it, it greatly advanced a manual environment where shipments were being issued on a typewriter and then mailed in. We grew from there and as time came along, develop our technology platforms for websites. And that just lent um, a lot more opportunity for just ease of use for us in terms of administration, the opportunities to get the data, digital formats, combine it with claims data, see where your problems were in terms of cargo claims. If you think of a logistic operation, they're about the movement of freight. If you think about, well, when there's problems in that service, you know, where's one of the first areas they show up? And it's 
cargo claims. Something's happened. A trucker is messed up or a steamship line or an airline. And that's useful data for a freight forwarder to look at where are their trends and claims. And hmm. then it would also put you in a position to take corrective action. So it now became the insurance program became not just a, a source of ease of administration, a source of profit for the logistics companies, but feedback on, on their service from a logistics standpoint. So all these advancements happen as a direct result. I'm sure that looking at technology over the years, like, I mean, APIs like five, 10 years ago, maybe were probably pretty big for, for the industry and some of the apps, like being able to pull the insurance into our app relies on that as well. What about like back in like the early, like nineties, was it building that desktop app? I'm sure that was super difficult back then. Like that lived probably a lot harder than it is today to build things. Was it? Yeah, it certainly was. It functioned well. It issued certificates at all. So issued U.S. custom bonds. Those were two documents that freight forwarders were uh, issuing at the time. International Freight Forwarder has many services. Freight forwarding can be one of them. Ocean shipments being uh, what's called an MDOCC, but they're also U.S. custom brokers. And so with the clearance and import of shipments, U.S. custom bonds would need to be issued. So the technology handled both of those, and it handled it very well from the manual system that was present there. The challenges and the difficulty was the administration. We would be working with a variety of freight forwarders who had various levels of technology skills, technology support staff. You know, we were having to fix problems that some of these freight forwarders couldn't fix themselves from a technology perspective. So too much involved in administration at that juncture. So it was great when we could move out of that environment. Last five or 10 minutes for you. I'm, I'm curious too, like how do you, you seem to have like spotted, I guess, technology early on from the get-go, the whole web thing was a thing. It seemed like you were kind of already getting into it. And, and some companies are just now still just getting into like web-based. There's, there's certain TMS providers that are just now touting like, oh, we're just now like web-based. So it, it is interesting that you've kind of stayed ahead of the curve. And it looks like AI is kind of the next iteration in this whole machine learning thing. Where do you, where do you see, I guess, the industry going? And like, how have you been able to, in the past, sort of stay up on these these things that are that are keeping you ahead of the, the curve. It relates to the visions that we had collectively as an organization, the inherent opportunities that we saw were there. We know our business model is in, we are a wholesale operation. We are what I call program managers. So our expertise and our skill is around seeing financial exposures present in any business model, a logistics business model. And they can be complex. There's a lot of things that can drive exposure. Are they a motor carrier? Are they a freight broker? Do they move freight internationally? A variety of things can drive exposure, and, and that's always been a strength strength of ours. Um, just inherently, technology can help you manage the multitude of exposures that are out there. And they're really complex when you get into logistics, but you have to have a digital environment where you can capture them. You have to have knowledge of what's driving exposures for the logistic operation. And then with that knowledge, designing technology programs that, that capture that, captures your, your trends. For instance, your trends in cargo claims. You know, is there certain commodities that are more prone? Is there certain uh, routes that are more prone to losses? Is there certain motor carriers specifically? All these issues that are relevant to logistics ultimately is the end product that a logistic company provides. 
and which drives exposures for them, which drives exposures for their insurance carriers. Being able to assess where the problems are puts you in a position to identify corrective actions. That then ultimately leads to less losses. That ultimately leads to more competitive price of your insurance coverage. So it's always forward thinking is always trying to differentiate yourself from anybody else in the industry. It's always been a driving force. We have been, I'd have to say, successful in that regard. We'll continue. AI brings a whole another spectrum of resources now and very huge potential with that. With logistics and freight brokers, one of the big exposures that they face is litigation uh, when a motor carrier that they've arranged transit with is involved in an accident. And mm. um, when that happens, litigation's filed. You have a wide variety of outcomes in litigation. What drives those results many times is the nature of how the freight broker helped themselves out. Freight brokers are subject to a federal definition, so they're technically not liable for the acts of a third-party motor carrier. But if they go outside of a freight broker's authority, for instance, maybe they offer a container to a truck, well, now that, that's outside of a freight broker. That can drive a bad result. They did a poor job in vetting. That could drive a poor result. So we know in that very important area of coverage, because we're litigation managers also, where the problems can be. We can set up technology that captures that. I think AI could be very interesting in that regard, as much as we can capture the results of litigation for freight brokers. There's a lot of data that can be analyzed and then lead to corrective actions moving forward. It's a fascinating industry. It's the lifeblood of the economy. Logistic. Question for you is it just seems like there's been a whole, I, I know double brokering has been going on for years because I remember hearing about it years ago, but it seems like there's just more like fraud being presented to the consumers or it's like in your face constantly. Yeah. Is that changed over the years or is it, is it just more hype now? You, you know, interestingly, <clears throat> maybe technology had a, a hand in it in, increasing to in this regard. You have load boards, and the load boards are the proximate cause for much of the double brokering that takes place or the outright identity theft. Think of a load board as shippers or freight brokers are posting shipments that want to be moved from A to B. It had created mm -hmm. some, a lot of inefficiencies because it avoided truckers having to deadhead, i.e. going to a city, dropping off their load, and then having to drive back to their, their principal origin. Well, with load boards now, they could capture shipments and pick up loads in the city that they've dropped off. But that load board is an advertisement for a bunch of shipments, some of which substantial values. And it, it set up a scenario where criminals could come in, look at those load boards, go to the FMCSA site and, and steal data on motor carriers, and then set up a scam that they were that motor carrier. So in a sense, the technology promoted that happening. So that's the other side of the equation. There are actions that have to be taken because that exposure is present. Much higher level of vetting has to take place. When you're contacted by a motor carrier who's seeing a load on the load board, you're going to vet that that is a real individual. So just a higher level of diligence and vetting has to take place as a result. Mm. Got one last question for you because you've done a lot of cool stuff entrepreneurial. Like, do you have any advice for folks that are either thinking about starting a business, maybe they've started a business and they're slowly growing it, 
any just advice for like to keep going or for like when t- times are tough? Cause I know that it's not easy. It, it's having a passion. Ideally. I mean, I had an early age. I, my father was involved in the business. I got exposed to a lot of really intelligent and interesting people. I developed a passion for it. So having a passion for what you're doing is important. One-on-one sales. How can you differentiate yourself from your competitors? Always be thinking about that. Robbing some concepts of other people that um, are focused on business. Um, Fear of influence, uh, a Covey concept. Be aware of what's within your sphere of influence. And then try to expect that as much as you can. Be conscious of what's outside of your sphere of influence. Don't put energies into that. Outworking people. Huge. That I learned from my father. Just outwork the other guys. And if you just do that, you're ahead of the game. Yeah, I love all those. Just get 1% better every day. And over time, that'll add up to a big number. And the sphere of influence thing, I think, is really interesting, too, because I feel like I've read that somewhere, like you were the average of like the five people that you hang out with. So, so something along those lines. So I, I totally get what you're saying there. It's almost like you're, you, you become almost probably similar to the people you hang out with to some sort of degree, I would assume. I would also say there's real value in having an ideal scene. An ideal scene is an exercise where you're consciously thinking about what you want to manifest in the future. Mm. And that could be your ideal job, that could be your ideal relationship, that could be whatever, your ideal golf round. But in order to manifest something, it really supports to have clear vision of what you want to manifest. Literally take, write in my ideal job or my ideal business I'm running, draw spokes and you just data dump. You think of things that be related to that ideal scene. And by getting all that out of your consciousness, then you have clarity on what you're trying to manifest. And you got a much better chance. If you're not clear on what you want to manifest, you're not in as strong a position if you are. Totally fair point. Without clarity, it's you're not gonna you know we're gonna go over your map. We're not gonna go anywhere. I well, I appreciate the conversation. That was really fun. Where do we send people if they want to learn more? You can go to our website, www.logistic.com. and you'll learn more about us there. And then we will also have a consulting website. Tim.com, Transportation uh, Innovations Management. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Glenn Stebbings of Logistic. He's a fun guy to talk to. He actually has his own private bar called, I believe it's called Buddha Bar down in uh, Manhattan Beach. So pretty cool. I don't know a whole lot of people that have their own bar because that's some next level stuff right there. Anyways, hope everyone's having a great Friday. Stay safe out there. Enjoy the weekend. And I will catch you on the next episode.